If you're anything like me, then cold, dark, a little bit rainy days like this make you very sleepy. I see some perhaps tired eyes in the congregation now. All the more reason that we should encourage ourselves as we come to worship to open up our eyes, to focus. What we do now is the most important thing that we do in this life. Worship the eternal triune, all-glorious, perfect God. We worship him tonight. I'd ask that we stand for the call to worship from Psalm 106, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful even to come and worship you this second time on your day, to be in the house with your saints, to give you praise and to give you thanks, and to be reminded of our salvation in Christ and to be reminded of our duties before you. I pray that you would be with us as we worship you tonight, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For our opening hymn, we're going to sing a favorite, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, hymn number 457.
our second hymn, why don't we stand and sing hymn number 363, We Gather Together. Hymn number 363. our third hymn of the nights. It's going to be hymn number 644, May the Mind of Christ My Savior.
Good evening, folks. We're going to be reading out of Genesis, so I'll be turning to chapter 32, first 21 verses. We're kind of laying the stage for one of the neatest stories in the Bible about reunions. As uh, Jacob and Esau are about to get back together, but not tonight. <laughs> but we're laying the stage for that. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 32, starting at verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, He came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and these are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking... If Esau, Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the uh, camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And those uh, are these. Uh, and what are, whose are those ahead of you? Then you shall say, "They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us." He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You shall uh, and you shall say, "Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us." For he thought. I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And let's pray together. Our Father who is in heaven, we come to you with nothing. And there is no power within us, no authority, no works, 
no attractiveness that would gain us access to your holy presence. We simply plead tonight, Father, the work of Jesus and present ourselves as having put on Christ and being clothed in him. We marvel uh, that when you see us, you see the Son. We can love because you first loved us. Help us to love you more and more. Grant us greater faith, we pray, greater boldness, greater urgency to share the gospel. Grant us also courage, Father, even courage like our brothers and sisters who are suffering persecution around the world. And Father, we think tonight about our missionaries again. Um, We just pray your blessing on them, your protection on them, uh, for your meeting their needs and keeping them strong in the faith and keeping their families strong. And we pray that you bless them with fruit, particularly for Neil Miao and Jessica Wong as they labor uh, in the Far East. Just bless them, Father, and uh, do protect them, bless them, particularly as he leads in teaching at the seminary there. Also, I'd like to lift up Elizabeth Murray to you tonight as she continues to minister in Japan. <clears throat> thank you for our government. We, uh, we thank you for... Uh, a free country, Father, and the fact that we can gather tonight without hesitation, without fear, without second thought. Uh, we do pray for those over us that you would give them wisdom, give them, give them a righteous heart, uh, ability to say yes to right and no to wrong. We pray that on the federal, state, and local level. Thank you for the PCA, Father, as well. Bless her ministry. We pray for her peace and purity at the GA level, Presbyterian level, and Father, even here at this level at Christ Church. We thank you for our pastors here, our session, diaconate. Just bless them, Father, and keep our pastors strong in the faith, strong in your word, and close following after your spirit. We pray particularly for Fred tonight as he has been ministering in the PCA. Bless his um, ministry there and protect his travel. Get get him and Deb home safely, we pray. And do we also pray for the sick among us, Father, just pray for your healing. That's our prayer. That's our desire. And uh, we've all been there, Father, being sick. And we, uh, we know that it's a time of trial, but it's also a time of digging deeper into faith. We pray that would be the case for these folks, that you would just strengthen them in their faith, encourage them to trust you more. We pray particularly now tonight for Bruce, Kathy, Dan, and Deborah. Also pray for those looking for work, Father, or needing more work. Meet those needs, and Father, even surprise them, we pray, with something that's beyond their expectation. Look forward now, Father, of the exposition of your word, the preaching, the teaching. Uh, Bless Kurt as he comes. Bless us as we listen. And Father, may our ears be open, our minds be open, and may we be teachable. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. you would please open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians. should warn you, we're going to be in three texts tonight, but I won't burden us by reading all of them at the start. Rather, each of my three main points comes with its own accompanying text. And so we'll switch as I move from point to point. But I do want to start with our first text in Galatians 5.13 to read that and then to pray for the Lord to bless us. Galatians chapter 5, 
only verse 13. Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask for mercy tonight. We ask that you would lead us on the way. We ask that the Lord Jesus Christ and his example would be ever in our minds and in our sight. For he was but a lowly servant who came not to be served, but to serve others and to die upon a cross for their justification and sanctification. And we pray that we might follow after him to be a servant as he is a servant. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are still making our way through. It's been a couple of months going through our series on the one and others. And it's been uh, an encouraging series. And there's been a lot of diversity. Lots of different preachers. Lots of different topics. And lots of different scripture texts. Let me just remind you of where we've been. Because after about ten or so weeks, we start to forget a little bit. We started off with the very foundation of this series. That we are to love one another. We moved from there to being told that we must forgive one another, to stir up one another, to comfort one another, to live in harmony with one another, to have fellowship with one another, to even submit to one another. And most recently, from Pastor King, we are to care for one another. Well, now we have a new commandment, and it is perhaps overlapping in some regards, and yet it is unique in its own right. It is to serve one another. In some regards, this is perhaps the simplest of all of the commands. And yet, it's also a vital command. It's one that's easy to understand, yet it really does take a lifetime to master. Service is simple, but it is so hard to do faithfully day in and day out as we follow Christ. I've got three points for us. I told you that each point comes from a different text, and I'll move to each text as we go forward. But here are my three points. We have freedom to serve, from Galatians chapter 5. Secondly, we will see that we have gifts to serve, spiritual gifts. And then thirdly, we have an example to serve, an example to serve. Let me start with our first. We have freedom to serve. And really what I want us to see here is that service is not the cherry on top uh, of our salvation. It's not the additional topping that we add that it can sort of be there or not be there. No, rather, Paul shows us that service is intricately related to and flows out of the very nature of our salvation. That's what he's telling us here. Look at what he says in Galatians 5.13. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. And we might think, well, what sort of freedom are we talking about here? And really, this is a description of not civil freedom, as we might normally think of it, but spiritual freedom. It's actually a description of salvation itself. Spiritual freedom. That is, the Christian is one who has been set free from this very present age itself, a present age that is dominated by sin and by the flesh, that is in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have been set free in our salvation from that world. I think Paul summarizes it well in 
the book of Colossians, there he says that he, being Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is what our freedom is. We've been set free from this very world and now we are free as citizens of Christ's glorious kingdom. But what does this freedom entail? Well, just two brief things to help us think through this. First, this, this freedom entails a freedom from the very guilt of sin. We have freedom from the guilt of sin. That is to say that when we are saved in Christ, we are justified by Christ. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Our sins are covered over by the righteousness of Christ. Our sins are atoned for and therefore we're not guilty. Therefore, we are held as righteous in the sight of God. And Satan can no longer accuse us. Why? Because we've been set free from even the guilt of sin itself. A second thing that this freedom entails is that we are free from sin's enslaving power. That is to say that you and I, gloriously as Christians, we're no longer controlled by sin. Sin is no longer our cruel master. Sin is no longer what defines us or motivates us. We're no longer mastered by sin in the way that we once were. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. There he says that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. In other words, what does this freedom mean? We've died to sin. We've died to the flesh. Well, that's what our freedom is. Well, what is this freedom not? Just a brief word here. This freedom is not freedom from all restraints. It's not an absolute freedom. It's not as if there are no laws binding the Christian, that there are no commandments, or that there are no expectations and responsibilities. No, we're not free to be or do or act any way that we want. And we see this in the way that Paul goes on in this text in Galatians 5.13. Look at what he says. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. If I could put it in my own words, don't abuse your freedom. Don't abuse the grace or take advantage of the salvation that you have been given. It's like a, a prisoner that is set free. And what does he do when he's on the outside world? Well, he commits sin or commits crimes yet again and has to be put back under chains. No, Paul is telling us, don't take advantage of this freedom. He says, don't give, let your freedom be an opportunity. Don't let it be the starting point. Don't let it be the occasion for us to give in to sin. And how tempting is that from time to time? To think in these sort of terms that now that we've been set free from sin and we're set free from the guilt of sin, well, I suppose I can go on sinning. After all, Christ has forgiven me of my sin and he will continue to forgive me of my sin. But no, this is an abuse of grace. Paul tells us this misunderstands the salvation that we have. Our salvation is more than simply the forgiveness of sins. Our salvation is to be renewed into the very image of Christ. That is, we're called to live as Christ lived. 
We're called and formed by the Holy Spirit to be holy as Christ is holy. So Paul warns us, do not abuse your freedom. Now how do we use our freedom? Here's where this becomes very clearly relevant for us. But through love serve one another. Here is the purpose or the reason that we have been set free. It's loving service. He actually uses a bit of a shocking word here. To uh, be a servant is to be a slave. It's to subject yourself. And Paul's almost making somewhat of an ironic point here. He's saying, you are free. So now, go be a slave. But not in the way that you once were a slave. No, now be a slave to Christ. Be a slave to one another in service of one another. In other words, use your freedom for the benefits and the good of God's people. What does that mean? It means you've been saved for this purpose. In order to serve one another. Now what does that mean in practice? Well, it means that we must be those who in freedom give our time and our effort for the sake of others in the body of Christ. It means that in freedom, willfully and with joy, we are those who care for the sick. We are those who visit the lonely. We're those who give generously to one another. We're those who watch out for one another and who make sure that there are no needs or that there is any supply lacking. We're those who go out of our way to serve in any way that we can. Really, this means that we're called to give of ourselves selflessly, to sacrifice our own comforts, our own delights, our own goals for the case, for the sake of those around us. I think one uh, old commentator captures this very, very well. He says this, he says, we are or should be trees of righteousness. Our fruit must be meat for others and our leaves for medicines. We must be as candles that spend themselves in order to give light to others. Brothers and sisters, we've been set free. Why? To serve one another. That's our first point. Now, secondly, from 1 Peter 4.10. You don't even have to turn there if you don't want to. It's rather short. And so I'll read it for us. But here in 1 Peter 4.10, we see gifts to serve. Peter writes, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's, as good stewards of God's varied grace. So Peter here is perhaps giving us the method of service. He's describing what our service is in more detail. How do we actually do it and what does he tell us? That service assumes spiritual gifts. It assumes a powerful work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. So what is the Holy Spirit doing? Well, he's the spirit of unity. He's uniting us to Christ and he's uniting us to one another. And how exactly does the Spirit work that union in believers? How does he unite us to one another? Well, he gives us things in common, doesn't he? For example, we're given a common doctrine. We together have one word of God. 
We're given a common gospel. We are together people saved by grace, by faith alone, by Christ alone. And we have a common purpose under the Spirit. Namely, the glory of God. And what is the result of these commonalities? It's brotherly affection. It's a kind of familial love as we've been brought together by these things we hold dearly together. We have brotherly affection and a familial love. In other words, these ties that bind us are strong. They're heavenly. They're eternal. And how is that brotherly affection to be expressed? Well, this is where Peter is helping us. It's to be expressed in the use of our spiritual gifts because we are in union with one another. Because we have such a great salvation in common, therefore we must use the gifts God has given us. Now, just a few things about spiritual gifts that we see in this text. First, Peter tells us that each is given a spiritual gift, and that includes all of us. It includes Every believer, every one of us has been spiritually gifted. Every one of us has been suited in some way or another for the work of ministry. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Be encouraged. Each one of us, every person in this room from the youngest to the oldest is gifted by the spirit of God in order to serve his church. Second thing we see is that there are a variety of spiritual gifts. Uh, Peter reminds us that God's grace is a varied grace. It's broad and it's wide. It is a dynamic kind of grace. And because God's grace is so broad, therefore there are many Many kinds and varieties of spiritual gifts because they are there to represent, in a sense, his grace. Once again, Paul confirms just the same thing. He says in Romans 12, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So there's this wide variety of spiritual gifts. We could even begin to categorize them, perhaps, in the scriptures. There are certain gifts that relate to instruction in the word of God. We see the gifts of teaching, preaching, gifts of exhortation or or warning or rebuke or evangelism, even. We see other categories, perhaps a category of shepherding, where we see those who are gifted for encouragement in the body. Those who are gifted in leading. Those who are gifted in administration, which is pulling together all of the various gifts that everybody else has and pointing them to the right place. Gifts of discipleship, gifts of wisdom and knowledge, or even gifts of discernment. Wisely being able to to discern good and evil the right way and the wise way. We need gifts of shepherding like this. There's even gifts of piety. Prayer, for example. Some of us, well, all of us are called to prayer, but there are some of us who are gifted in it, who pray in a powerful way, who pray in a way that others look and they are edified by their prayer. Or perhaps the spiritual gift of faith itself. All of us are given faith in the body of Christ, yet there are those with tremendous faith. There are those who have bold and godly faith. Those are gifts of piety. And then lastly, we might categorize those gifts of practical service. 
Gifts of generosity, those who give of their goods and give of their money willingly and often. Gifts of mercy, those who show mercy to those who even do not deserve it. Gifts of hospitality, those who open up their homes, those who welcome those around them and make them feel at home. These gifts are so broad, don't you see that? And brothers and sisters, we need all of them. I don't want there to be one gift lacking in this church because we will be missing something of the grace of God should we not have that gift present and used and exercised to the glory of God. So I ask you tonight, do you know how you're spiritually gifted? Better yet, are you confident in it? Are you using that gift? And, and I would encourage you, if you don't know the answer to that question, well then, be willing to try them out. Be willing to step into the place of an encourager or even a rebuker or a teacher. Be willing to step out of your comfort zone even. Try out new areas of service and in doing so, you will discern the will of God for you. You will discern where your gifts lie. And I encourage you, remember what the purpose of spiritual gifts are. They're not for our own sake. They are meant to be used. They are meant for the building of the body of Christ. This is how God sheds his grace upon his church. He uses us and the gifts that he has given us. And so God is calling us. And not only that, he has equipped us for service. Now, lastly, I want us to see in my third point an example of service. And for this, I'd ask, you do need to turn there for a longer text Turn to John chapter 13. We'll read here a well-known and famous portion of Scripture. Uh, Verses 1 through 17 in John. Here's what the Gospel writer records. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet, Jesus. My feet, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he had said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also 
should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So here in this third point, we see the example of service. That is, Christ himself sets forth the example we are to follow. Now, let me just briefly ask us what's going on in this text. Well, this is the beginning. It's the opening of a very famous section in Scripture. It's the opening of the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal there with his disciples. And really, he's preparing his disciples for a very bumpy road ahead. He's going to die. He's going to be mocked, and he's going to be crucified But he will also rise from the dead and he will also ascend and depart from them. And he's preparing them for all that is to come. And there is a sense in which as he's drawing his disciples close to him in this final few days, he's sort of saved the best for last. He's saved some of his most wonderful teachings here for them at this time. There was a professor in seminary that I used to um, admire a great deal. And he was known for being a seminary professor who would walk almost madly around the room as he taught. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody do that. But he would walk around and up and down the rows. He would even sit on students' desks. And he was just perhaps ADHD. I don't know. He moved around a lot. But there were certain moments where this professor would cease all activity. And he would stand and almost look past the students and he would close his eyes and and sometimes his hands would be in the air and he would speak so precisely and so wonderfully and warmly and he was dropping gold. And and you could imagine the students are looking at him and and no one's taking any notes because what he's saying is so helpful for, for pastoral ministry and understanding the scriptures that you're just focused in on what this professor is saying. I think there's a sense in which this is what's going on tonight. Christ is giving them the absolute best. He's saving all for the end here. And why does that matter? What does he start with? What's the first thing that he does to begin this momentous night of teaching and encouragement? Well, he starts by giving them an example of service. This is how you are to live, as if he is saying. This is what I'm trying to communicate to you. This is what I've been trying to get into your minds and to show you these past three years, is what he's telling his disciples. Be a servant. He gives them this example of even taking the lowest and most menial of tasks. He washes their bare and disgusting feet. He's willing To be a servant. And and look at what he says in verse 1. He says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So, what is this model? It's for continuous, uh, each and every day, humble, loving service. He is showing them what it looks like to love unto the very end. So, let me just give a few. Things to see 
in this example of his service. Just, just two things. First, we see that Jesus serves even though he is the master of all. Look at verse 3. It says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Why does it start off by saying that Jesus rises knowing that everything has been put into his hand? He's been given all glory. He's been given all honor from the Father. All praise now belongs to him. And yet he still gets up and he serves Peter and John and James. What's he doing here? Well, at the very least, he is striking down any prideful arrogance that any one of us might have in his church. That is to say, if he, the Lord of all, is willing to serve and to take the lowest of positions, then how much more so you and I be willing to serve and to do what is necessary? We see this emphasized again in verses 14 and 16. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And look at verse 16. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So what does that mean for us? Well, it's very simple. We are not above service. We are not too great for it. We're not too unique for it. We're not too special for it. None of us gets a pass for how wise we are. No, none of us are grand leaders who simply point the way and say, go and do, and everybody else goes and does the work. No, none of us. No, rather, all of us are simple servants in the house of God. We're waiters at God's table. We're errand boys for God's kingdom. We're maids for God's house. We are at the very bottom, and that's okay. Praise be to the Lord that he lets us even take these tasks. I think the psalmist summarizes it so well in Psalm 84. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. We see this great humility of Jesus and we must follow. The second thing we see here is that Jesus calls us to humble action. Look at verse 15 and 17. He says, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And in verse 17, he says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What is being emphasized in those verses? It's really simple. It's the doing. Blessed are you if you do them. I've given you this example that you may do them too. In other words, here is where our faith becomes practice. Here is where our doctrine becomes visible and shown to others as lights in this world. Here's where our salvation is to lead to works of service and humility. It's really the same thing that James talked about in his epistle in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. He says, so also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you 
have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Here we must make it our aim to do. To go beyond simply hearing the word of God. To go beyond simply knowing what God has done for us. But to move into a place where we serve as Christ has served. I dare say make it our motto that we serve one another more than we are served ourselves. That we strive to outdo one another in service. That we uh, strive to not grow weary in doing good for one another. And as I'm saying this, you're beginning to get exhausted already, aren't you? I was exhausted preparing this sermon. How can we do it? The answer is always so simple, isn't it? We go and we look to Christ. Because he's not only our justification, he is our sanctification to this day, this very evening, this very moment. He is our sanctification and he has filled us with his spirit. And he can renew us. And he can give us a zeal for service in a new way. He can even give us greater joy in serving him. Even more than that, he can strip away our pride that keeps us away from so much work that we consider unimportant for others to do. He can overcome all of our selfishness and our self-centered ways. And isn't that a glorious and wonderful gospel truth? How can we do this? We go to Christ. We look to him. We pray to him. And he will give us what we need to serve him faithfully. In conclusion, Jesus calls us to follow this example. It's not a prideful example. It's not even a great one. It's one of a lowly servant. Forgotten, yet nevertheless used by God. And so I encourage us. That by his grace would we follow him in humble and loving service. Let's pray.